millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Before we start today's show, I wanted to thank everyone who's listening. You may have heard some different formats recently. The last episode featured New England writer Kathleen Langone on the artist Amalia Kusner, and a few months back, Clive Webb read on a Scottish fraudster who swindled Jay Gould. I love all the shows I do, but these are especially fun because they're collaborative. And if any listeners are out there that have an idea for a show, send me an email and let's talk. It's probably a good idea. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed today's look at U.S.-Latin American relations in the Gilded Age. A few years back, I reviewed a wonderful book by Jay Narr on the transnational history of Uruguay and the United States in the 1920s. Narr showed that the ideas of American progressivism did not materialize only at home or in a vacuum. In fact, the Colorado Party in Uruguay was conceiving of progressivism at the same time as Bull Moose Republicans, populists, or Robert La Follette. More importantly, their ideas co-mingled in the Western Hemisphere like a petri dish of political experimentation. Today, we're joined by Dr. Roberto Saba, who uses the same setting to explain how North and South America debated industrial capitalism in the 1860s, 1870s, and 1880s three decades that saw the transformation of the United States and Brazil from slave economies to wage economies. Now that transition, as we'll hear soon enough, was not identical in the United States and in Brazil. The story brings us all over these places to Boston's financial district, the coffee plantations of Sao Paulo, and the cotton plantations of southern Brazil. In all of these places, the front line of the future economy is being bred, and the way that they developed without slavery offers us an insight into the development of hemispheric relations. Now, that brief introduction that I've just given does an injustice to Roberto's study because it does so little to tell you about what his book covers. It's extraordinary. It's it's lengthy and it's well-detailed. He's researched the private papers of individual activists, business leaders, agricultural and industrial journals, and government documents to present a really vivid account of the economy of the American South. And by American South, I mean North American uh, and South American as a Southern uh, region and area. Now, I'm also purposely not going to introduce Professor Saba's interests because my first question will be about how he refers to his own multifaceted research. What I will say is that Professor Saba is a professor of American studies at Wesleyan University and has studied in Brazil before earning his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome to the show, Roberto. 
Thanks, Mike. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm delighted to have you. Normally, I start off by introducing people that come on by saying, oh, these are all the great things that they've done, and these are their research interests. And I am struggling a little bit with you because um, you, you're multi-talented, really, in terms of you, the, the work that you do is, in the best way that I can say, interdisciplinary. And so, in a way, I was hoping that you might introduce a little bit about the work that you do, because it covers politics, economics, globalization, imperialism. How do you wrestle with all these fields, and, and how would you describe, in your own words, your, your scholarship? Well, I've been always fascinated since I was a student at the University of Sao Paulo by comparative history. And the comparative scholarship that you know, emerged here in the US and also in Latin America uh, in the 60s, 70s was interdisciplinary uh, by nature. So that was a model for me. And uh, what I try to do with my work now is to take the next step, right? To, to do it transnationally, to try to not only compare, but connect. And uh, when you're trying to connect to different countries uh, with such, you know, complex histories and uh, so many transformations, especially in the long 19th century, you need to use tools from different disciplines. You need to take approaches that are you know, from, from classic works and, and from new stuff. Uh, so that's what I've been trying to do. And now working at an American studies department here at Wesleyan, it has you know, uh, also made me uh, look back and, and see that um, this is the way to go, I think. This is... Uh, you know, with this new transnational wave of scholarship, we see amazing work being done by the likes of uh, Sven Becker, Ichiro Azuma, who, who also uh, draw on different disciplines, different approaches, uh, different methods. Well, you work across disciplines, but there is a sort of a basis in two camps, and that's a personal one as well as a professional one. So you write about Brazil and the United States, and you've got that personal connection living in the U.S., but being brought up in, in Brazil, right? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like many Brazilians and many Americans, I'm from a family of immigrants from all over the world. So and I have cousins and siblings who have moved away from Brazil and, you know, circulate. So that's another personal connection uh, that made me interested in, in these exchanges. Right. My personal life and also, you know, having been. Uh, born and raised in Brazil, I went to college there and then came here for uh, my PhD in 2011 and have been here since. Uh, you know, these are, are um, personal connections that I have, but I'm also fascinated by uh, this period when circulation wasn't that, you know, easy, when they were actually making this globalized world that now we take for granted. Uh, when, you know, travelers like the missionaries, the educators, the, the students that I write about had to take steamships and spend, you know, weeks at sea. Uh, and then, you know, they couldn't call, they couldn't email, they couldn't Zoom uh, with their family. So I'm also fascinated about, you know, what they were creating and how they were improvising, how they were uh, building this, as I say in the book, brave new world of globalization in uh, capitalism. Well, let's flash back there then, okay? So let's start. The book is called American Mirror. It is 
I mean, it, it's an outstanding book, not just because of the various talents that you bring to bear on it, but uh, naturally for listeners, they're going to be interested in these three decades. It's the 1860s, the 1870s, and the 1880s. They're critically important when we think about slavery and economics. Um, so as a start, why don't you just summarize your findings in, in the book? Sure. So actually, uh, I begin in the mid-1840s and uh, on chapter one, looking into how pro-slavery Southerners failed to bring what seemed to be the natural ally for the pro-slavery cause uh, to their camp, which was Brazil. The United States by the 1840s, 1850s had 4 million slaves. Brazil had 2 million with half the free population of the United States. So they were similar uh, demographically. And uh, Brazilians had no interest in what the South had to offer. And I tried to show that because uh, there was no expertise, there was no technology, uh, there was no you know, diplomatic influence that Brazilians could see was profitable for them uh, in the American South. On the other hand, they saw that the North had a lot to offer them and could help them in the transition from slavery to wage labor which was something that Brazilian elites, the planters, like many elites around the world, uh, had been trying to do for a long time, especially because they were under British imperialist pressure. So uh, that was kind of a surprise for me during the research. I thought the book was, would be a lot about Brazil and uh, its relation with the American South, but the Northerners appeared as this new influence, this new power uh, shaping, helping, Brazilians shape their path to free labor. Uh, so what I saw was this movement of uh, Brazilians interested in what was going on in the United States and Republicans, Yankees, capitalists from the North uh, interested in exchanging uh, with Brazil and investing in Brazil and uh, helping Brazil make the transition that uh, the South refused to make. So that's basically uh, what happened during the research and my main find was that Brazil gave the Yankees, gave the Republicans the opportunity to do what they had planned to do in the South, but were unable because of reactionary forces. It's a great story. And I'm not that surprised that Boston appears as the epicenter of the story in that, you know, antebellum and also civil war period. I mean, it's it's the it's the hub of capital. It's also the puritanical heart of American morality. But your story really focuses on capitalism as the driving force. And you just, you know, you just really eloquently, you know, uh, enunciated that here. But I, I was wondering about morality and particularly that Christian morality of the abolitionists. What part does that play in Brazil? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think these things cannot be separated, right? Because these, uh, this missionary mentality of missionaries, but also educators, scientists, capitalists, bankers, investors, uh, who are trying to help Brazil transition to free labor is both a, a religious, and an economic mentality. Uh, they see that you know, the triumph of their enterprises, uh, the success in building railroads, in establish businesses, in opening schools, in uh, exchange uh, commodities and technology with Brazil uh, mean that they are you know, 
the chosen people of God in a way. They are uh, they have this civilizing mission that you know later we know what is going to uh, happen and how that is going to turn into imperialism and expansion abroad. I'm thinking about like Rudyard Kipling and the White Man's Burden and you know the War of 1898. But I want to avoid that teleological uh, narrative. I want to show that there were alternative ways that uh, this uh, so-called civilizing mission uh, could be, you know, uh, exerted in another country. And uh, perhaps this alternative influence, this capitalist missionary influence uh, that Northerners uh, had in Brazil helped shape American power in the early 20th century when it finally became one of the greatest empires. Okay, so I know the answer to this because I read the book, but given the explanation about the role that Northerners played in Brazil, and you've, you've also said that Brazilians were open to the idea of emancipation as early as the 1840s, perhaps, why does it take another 40 years for Brazil to emancipate, emancipate their slaves? Well, yeah, that's, that's the central question, and I get that a lot, because they were interested in preserving perhaps expanding the power of the planter class. And it, it took, you know, uh, trial and, er and error, uh, testing new forms of management, concentrating capital, investing, expanding the workforce through immigration uh, and controlling the very process. So they, they were in no rush uh, in accomplished emancipation in Brazil. And uh, by they, I, I, I mean uh, these Northerners. They were glad to, you know, see the Brazilian planter class take their time and do it as they thought uh, properly uh, by, you know, buying machinery, by adopting scientific methods of agriculture, by coming to the United States to study at land great universities and seeing how uh, agro industry should work. Um, so, and on the other hand. Many Northerners, as we know uh, from the history, the tragic history of Reconstruction and the post-Reconstruction period, had been regretting what had happened in the American South, right? There's a pushback against radical Republicanism and the liberal Republicans take over. And it's these people who actually influence Brazil and are glad to work with the Brazilian planters to make sure that emancipation is gonna help capital, not labor. I mean, how does, what's the legacy of that in Brazil, the gradual, uh, because you, you, like you say about the radical Republicans, you don't have the same rifts in Brazil, I'm guessing, uh, that, that, that you do in the United States today. Well, there were radical abolitionists in Brazil and, uh, and some of them radicalized after emancipation as they saw what wage labor was becoming, right? What, what they thought would be freedom was very different from what they had dreamed with, but, uh, they were silenced because the powers of the planter class were preserved and expanded. Uh, on the one hand, gradual emancipation created, especially uh, in Sao Paulo, in Southeast Brazil, one of the most developed, if not the most developed region uh, in terms of industrialization, infrastructure, trade of the global South. Uh, and uh, they didn't, from an elite perspective, it was a awesome deal because they didn't have to deal with all the, the chaos, uh, the revolutionary forces that took over the American South uh, during reconstruction. On the other hand, in terms of uh, race relations, 
from that moment to this day, it's it's complicated in Brazil because these questions were silenced, right? Uh, Brazil has a very different form of racism, but it is a very racist country uh, because there there is no uh, open public debate. Of course, there has always there had always been um, social forces. Uh, activist groups, especially uh, uh, formed of Afro-Brazilians and the working class that try to, to, to bring these questions to the table, but the elites preserved their power to such an extent that they were able to muffle, to silence uh, these debates. And we built this culture that uh, is based on, you know, the, the mid 20th century Gilberto Freire's idea of a racial democracy, which is in itself, a form of uh, brutal racism. It's an incredible story that I think your what your book does is it gets to the wellspring of that. And what you do to 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 get to the wellspring is to show off some really interesting uh, historical characters. I mean, you you introduce and articulate the position of pro-slavery Americans, anti-slavery Americans, Brazilian elites, and and others. Who do you think are the most important uh, characters in this story, and, and why why is that? Uh, that's a great question. I'm really fascinated by these brokers, people like James Cooley Fletcher, who was uh, a Presbyter Presbyterian missionary from Indianapolis, whose father was a banker, a member of the Republican Party. And he lived in Switzerland for a while. And he goes to Brazil to work for the Siemens Missionary Society. And he he just, you know, becomes very close to the Brazilian elite, including the emperor Dom Pedro II. And uh, he then starts connecting uh, American engineers, entrepreneurs, bankers with Brazilian politicians and Brazilian planters. And uh, he's able to circulate and help create, for example, the uh, United States and Brazilian uh, steamship line in uh, the 1860s. That's the first direct line of steamers connecting New York to Rio. Uh, and there, there are others who learn with him, uh, Brazilian and American brokers that bring these two uh, countries together. Uh, and as I was saying before, the fact that they were doing this at the time before the telephone, before Zoom, right? It, it's mind blowing. Uh, it, it's really fascinating. And they play a major role, you know, I've. Um, it is a book about elites. It is a book about, you know, a small group of people who get together to, you know, devise a plan for the future of agriculture and trade, but they had huge influence. Their decisions, their networks, their ideas, their projects transformed uh, not only Brazil and the United States, but the relations between these two countries. It seems as though Brazil also has this, um... I wouldn't say love, hate, but uh, fear of direct investment, a foreign direct investment, but also maybe a courtship of that foreign investment as well. So how does that play out? Because it, it seems like that is a, a prevalent theme in, in everything that these actors are doing. Yeah, and that's true of today as well, right? But this is a very special moment, uh, uh, I think, because Brazilians, First, the United States wasn't as powerful as some other powers in the world then. The British, the French, even the, the Spanish, if you think uh, in terms of networks and, and, and power abroad, 
especially in relation to Latin America. So Brazilians were able to, perhaps this is not the right word, but to manage uh, American investment much better because these Yankees didn't have the upper hand, right? They were still learning how to go abroad and exert their power. And at the same time, Brazil could play with these different uh, powers with you know, the British, the French, uh, the Spanish, uh, and the Americans and use uh, one against the other uh, and you know, bargain and bring different actors. And that, you know, and they did it materially, for example, when building the Dom Pedro II Railroad, which connects Rio to the coffee producing region of the interior. Uh, and parts of it uh, was, parts were built by uh, British companies, other parts by American companies. Sometimes there were uh, British companies working with American technology, uh, American engineers working for you know, British contractors and there were Brazilians involved as well. And uh, that's, that's what I mean by negotiating, by working with different powers and being able to exert Brazilian influence. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. We know where the story goes because we know the United States um, uh, agency in, in Brazil is only growing, you know, through that direct foreign investment. But Britain is such a huge player at this time, too. And I mean, maybe we can talk a little bit about that. I mean, there's a longer history of European financing in Latin America, Brazil, you know, Argentina. Um, 
I, I don't know, maybe I've just answered my question here, but why did Brazil grow closer to the United States and not closer to Britain? Well, the British were an empire and they had been pressuring Brazil for decades, especially when it came to slavery. And so Brazilians, you know, in the 1850s, 1860s, found these uh, anti-slavery northerners who are anti-British and who are willing to work with Brazil in a non-imperialist way to help Brazilians make the transition. Uh, the British never went away. The British were useful uh, for Brazil and other, for Brazilian elites and other uh, Latin American elites at the time, but uh, the United States uh, was this alternative to this kind of uh, interventionist anti-slavery empire that the British became, especially after the American Revolution in uh, the 1830s. So uh, Brazilians see, you know, uh, someone, uh, a power they can work with, and that's what the North uh, represent. And a power that has, you know, uh, all these new technologies to offer, all this new expertise, and that has been going through a process that is not the same, but it's parallel to what, you know, would happen in Brazil, that is slave emancipation. I guess the reason why I'm thinking about Britain and the United States too, is that there is, you know, in the scholarship, a, a book like uh, Mark Palin's book about the conspiracy of free trade, you know, there is this debate going on about what American trade policy is going to look like, and is it going to be more like British free trade and that Cobden idea, or is it going to be more like the Listian uh, Republican protectionism? And, you know, there, because that debate's going on and primarily in the North, you know, with these same traders that are, you know, moving down South and investing in Brazil, I'm just wondering, do those debates play out in Brazil the same way they're playing out all over the world at this time? They did. And uh, what I see is that they did both. Uh... And they were, and both sides were happy with that because these countries, unlike you know uh, the U.S. and the U.K., uh, uh, which had similar economies, they were both industrializing and were competing, right, against one another for markets and also you know uh, for, for for trade and exchange among themselves. Uh, Brazil was an agrarian society that produced a commodity that you know, we still cannot produce in North America. Uh, coffee uh, here in the continental United States. And uh, the industrial North was uh, this region of the world going through the second industrial revolution, right? Producing technology that Brazilians really craved, really wanted to have, but weren't producing themselves. Uh, so that's why Brazilians are fine with American protectionism, with American incentives to their own industry, because that doesn't affect uh, Brazilian interests, especially exporting coffee. On the contrary, because coffee was this is this powerful stimulant, I was just having some uh, right now, uh, it can serve uh, American industrialization really well, right? Because workers, proletarians, uh, working on assembly lines in American factories for 10 hours a day, they're going to be drinking a lot of Brazilian coffee. So brilliant, brilliant stuff. I mean, okay, so there's coffee and that is definitely unique to Brazil. And the timeliness is tea is kind of falling out of fashion at this time frame too. So coffee is going to be the real, you know, as, as important as, as it is now, but uh, cotton, cotton isn't uh, uh, something that, 
Brazil has a lock on, you know, that's, that's something that's going to be competitive and free trade is going to, well, it would open up, I, I suppose, the United States to um, an influx of cotton from places like India or Brazil. So how, how does Brazil navigate that? I mean, I know we're talking probably post-Civil War when the cotton industry collapses in the South, but how does that, how does Britain-American relations over cotton play out during these years? Uh, the cotton produced in Brazil uh, that begins uh, during the Civil War and after with with many incentives from uh, the Manchester Cotton Supply Association, for example, and British capitalists who want you know, new suppliers to avoid the reliance uh, that they had on the American South, that cotton gets exported initially, but later uh, in the 1870s, it becomes a way to begin a process of industrialization, especially in places like the province of Sao Paulo and it's small scale. It's part of this uh, project to diversify the, the, the Brazilian economy that the very coffee planters have. And that doesn't really affect or threaten in any way capitalists from the United States or from Great Britain. Uh, and uh, what actually happens uh, is that Brazil uh, these uh, manufacturers, these small-scale uh, cotton textile manufacturers in Brazil, they're going to be importing machinery uh, from the United States and also from Great Britain in order to industrialize. So actually, that's the main thing that's uh, helped both sides. It's not as much about textiles, but it's about capital goods. It's about machinery. It's about... Uh, the second industrial revolution, this new uh, world of, of steel uh, that is emerging in that era. And that's the main uh, entryway of American capital in Brazil. Fascinating. And it makes me think as well about, because there's all these interconnections and, you know, excluding Britain, but, uh, but obviously I want to include the United States and the Southerners that would go down and plant cotton in Brazil. You know, how does that change the conception of Pan-Americanism at this time? Because that debate is really going to kick off in earnest again in the 1880s with James Blaine uh, and his, his move for a greater Pan-American cooperation. And it sort of dissipated in the years between the 1820s and the 1880s, or it was on a decline. So I'm wondering where that story of Pan-Americanism fits in with the Brazil-America story in these years. Yeah, uh, that's something that's right after uh, the period uh, I finished the book at, but you know the, the seeds are already there, the cooperation I'm talking about. And I think the main, uh, the main you know, force uh, kind of shaping what's gonna become Pan-Americanism is this anti-European uh, sentiment that both countries share. And that becomes really relevant during the Civil War when you know, uh, the French intervene in, in Mexico, Spain intervenes in the Dominican Republic and in Peru. Uh, you have the British trying to manipulate all sides, including uh, the Confederacy, right? Try to split uh, the United States. And uh, it's a moment in which both Brazilian and uh, Northern American elites 
and other Latin American elites uh, realize that they need to, to watch out for each other. And uh, that, you know, the main players, the main empires, if you look at Africa or Asia, uh, are the Europeans. So the United States, in a way, uh, is, is a benign force from a Latin American perspective at this time. Again, we cannot uh, read history backwards, right? We know what's going to happen in the 20th century already in the late 19th century. But at the time it made sense. It made sense to invite the Yankees in. You know, it made sense for Latin American elites uh, to believe Lincoln when he says that the US, that the union is the last best hope of mankind. I mean, can I just say, that's one of the reasons why I think your book should be on reading lists is because there's a number of historiographical questions that you, you show us answers to or glimpses of, and, and this Pan-Americanism question is one of them, you know, one of the reasons why it erupts in the 1880s is because of three or four decades worth of networking and cooperation towards a partnership that's going to build roads across the two continents and railways and, 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 and all of that. The other question, historiographical question that I think your book grapples with really well is one about geography. Because you know we've we've been tinkering with the idea of what is the American South for a long time now, and I think what your book does, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it draws the uh, the the Southern United States into Brazil's orbit, and uh, and almost redraws the, the the borders of the South American continent in some regards. Yeah, uh, there was this idea, and that's why they got so self confident, right, and perhaps failed to to bring Brazil uh, into their orbit, that <clears throat> the American South would be able to continue doing what they had done to Mexican Texas, right? That they, you know, you see the filibusters in Nicaragua, the plans they have for Cuba. And what I try to, to do is to flip a little bit the story and show that, you know, there were powers in, uh, in South America, in Latin America, who were aware of what the South, the imperialist pro-slavery Southerners were doing. And uh, like they had done with, they were doing with the North and the British, <clears throat> they also did with the North and the South, uh, trying to manipulate these forces. Uh, you know, right after the war, they, they invite Southerners to come to Brazil to produce cotton. Southerners go with this idea that they can revive the slave South in Brazil, and they can become major planters uh, again, and teach Brazilians how to be slaveholders. And actually, they become sharecroppers. They become totally dependent on the Brazilian elite. So, uh, what I try to show is that you know Latin Americans and Brazilians, in this case, uh, were uh, well informed about what was going on and how they could uh, use. Uh, these clashing forces here in North America to their own advantage. That's a great segue to the metaphor that you actually use in the book, which is this idea of a mirror. Uh, you've written that it allows us to think about the United States and Brazil as being in a state of constant response. Tell us about what the constant response is. Yeah, so in a way it, it's, they had a created creative approach to each other. Uh, and that's what I wanna do when I, when I talk about, when I use the mirror metaphor, you know, 
they look at each other as someone looks in the mirror uh, and imagine what you know they can do with themselves. Uh, Americans, Northerners, looked at Brazil and saw that you know perhaps they could do in Brazil and with the Brazilians what they were unable to do with the American South. And that in Brazil, they could prove themselves to the world, including the British, including European empires, that the United States was in the game, that uh, the US could exert power abroad and could uh, help uh, bring a new style of modernization of capitalist development to other countries. Uh, Brazilians, uh, for their part, looked at the United States and saw things that they wanted to do that they wanted to accomplish, that they wanted you know, uh, to, to use as a model. And the westward expansion is part of it. Uh, Agro-industry as it's emerging in uh, the Midwest and in the West in places like California is something that Brazilians are fascinated about. And also things that they didn't like, that they didn't want to do. And that was the South, right? Uh, the plantation economy of the South before the war, uh, the reactionary, stances of Southerners after the war, the very form of racial terror that existed in the American South was something that Brazilian elites wanted to avoid. So, uh, you know, that's the mirror metaphor uh, that I'm trying to work with. I love it. I think it's a great metaphor. It works really well. I, I, there were parts where I did wonder, like you mentioned the West there, for example. I mean, I get the rejection of the South and I get you know, the, the storytelling about Southerners coming to Brazil expecting to have, you know, Dixie and, uh, you know, a, a, in Brazil is, is incredible. But what about indigenous peoples? I couldn't help but think about the parallels in the American West and in Brazil. How do they fare in this period in Brazil? Because I, I think a lot of people know how uh, indigenous people in the United States fare and it's, it's, not, it's not well. How, how's the story in uh, Brazil and is it, is it a mirror? Yeah, well, that's a book to be written. That's something that, uh, yeah, I felt throughout the research and the writing process that, uh, you know, would be something very interesting to address, but would open so many, you know, new questions. It would be, uh, you know, it deserves its own uh, monograph. It deserves its own research. Uh, and I know there are historians thinking about this. This is something that I want to do in the future as well, to think about the global West, right? Uh, but I think there's a parallel to the question of black-white relations, right? In Brazil, these, you know, indigenous people have, uh, were uh, suffering from displacement, genocide, all sorts of brutalization, uh, but these questions were silenced. Uh, the Brazilian elites, through, you know, their cultural hegemony, uh, were able to, to leave it aside, to not discuss it, to not make it such a big political question as it had happened in the United States. And it seems to me that it's part of what they're learning from the United States. Uh, they see the Indian Wars that start actually during the Civil War, right, and extend well into uh, the 1890s, and uh, they manage this question differently in Brazil from what they learn from the United States. But again, this is something that needs to be taken seriously uh, by a historian in the future. Hopefully we'll see something. Okay, watch this space, so I guess, right? Um, 
It's fascinating. I mean, that that was something that stood out to me. The other thing that stood out to me was you've already mentioned the Brave New World chapter, which explores the lives of journalists and engineers, freedmen, how they're, they're all interconnected. What do you think makes these people so compelling for this time period as well? I mean, it seems like they are, they are, I know you were saying that you can't look at history from, you know, the, the, the future back, but what makes these people such change makers? Well, they're imagining a new future. Uh, they are uh, creating something completely new because if we think about labor, right? Uh, historically, the idea of free labor uh, was rare, uh, you know, before the 19th century. The idea that people will sell their labor power and get a wage in exchange is something that only exists in a few pockets of the North Atlantic. And these guys are actually saying, no, this should be a universal mode of production. This should be applied everywhere. Uh, and this is a major change because unfree labor or family labor or, you know, uh, local uh, forms of uh, self-sufficiency, self-reliance were dominant until then. And they want to bring this new uh, wage labor reality to the whole world. And uh, now it seems, you know, this is the natural uh the natural development out of unfree labor, the fact that uh, wage labor should prevail, but that wasn't so clear. And if you look, you know, like Thomas Holt did and other historians did from the perspective of enslaved people, uh, of peasants, of agrarian peoples everywhere in the world, wage labor was not what they had planned. It was not what they wanted. They wanted, like the, the, the freed people in the United States, something like 40 acres in a mule. Uh, autonomy, working on their own, building and protecting their own communities. And these modernizers, these anti-slavery reformers that are right about, they're going against the world uh, of the slaveholders, but also of you know, global peasantries that are thinking uh, of alternative ways to build freedom. Two other groups that are in the, the feature heavily in the book are also going against those trends or those sort of the previous generations and the way they saw the world. And, and that's educators and missionaries. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that because your book, you know, has a chapter that deals with these, these two groups as well. Yeah, they were, you know, they were part of, you know, they were part of this modernizing anti-slavery transnational group that I write about. And they see education as a means to prepare elites uh, in order to manage wage labor, to uh, adopt new technologies, to keep improving, to keep applying science to production, right? And uh, your first question or one of your first questions about you know, the religious and the economic aspects of this exchange, it's, it's, it's here, right? The same way that they think that you know, uh, good Christians will create good enterprises, they also think that good educators, good schools, uh, will help local elites modernize and become more cosmopolitan and be part of this uh, global capitalist system. And that's what they're doing in places like the province of Sao Paulo, beginning in, in the 1870s. 
So I think everyone can understand where this book is going. Economics touches every aspect of life in America and Brazil. And I really just have to thank Roberto so much for coming on. The book is it's an outstanding take on, on bilateral relations in a global context, but told through a really wonderfully interdisciplinary lens. So I can't thank you enough for your time and for the book. Thank you. This has been a huge pleasure. Uh pleasure. We always learn something new when we engage in these conversations about our own work. So thank you. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen, because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.